Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Has the news got you unsettled and worried? Feeling uncomfortable with the absolute state of things? Well, one way to help that unnerving feeling of discomfort is by heading over to British-Boxers.com where they do knockout undies and nightwear and you'll be as snug as a bug in some very nice pants as you swear in despair at the television. Not only do British boxers have luxurious two-fold cotton on all of their clothes, but they're also a lovely ethical bunch who respect workers' rights, manufacture all their stuff with minimal waste, and, I mean, actually, they're almost too nice a bunch. It's ridiculous. Hasn't anyone dug up any dirt on them? Have they ever returned a library book back late or something? Wow, no, not even... Oh my goodness. Well, if you grab great garments from BritishBoxers.com, then use the code PARPOLBRO15 at the checkout and you'll get a swanky 15% off whatever you buy, which will hopefully make you feel less sad that you're just not as good as them. Sorry, I'm just projecting now. BritishBoxers.com. They must have once done swears at someone's parking. No, not even that. Bonkers. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that won't be making any excessive cuts, which is why the editing is always terrible and it goes on far, far too long. I'm Tiernan Duyebin this week as the Prime Minister and what if Richie Rich was an incel? Rishi Sunak says at COP27 that he is the clean energy champion. I don't think it counts if the only setting you use on your results is for whitewashing. If those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it, then it's clear that the biggest problem British politicians, and indeed large swathes of the electorate have in 2022, is a short-term memory that would make a goldfish start a GoFundMe out of pity. I am aware that it's not long been discovered that goldfish do indeed have a decent memory, but I suppose they choose not to recall things when all they've got to look back on is days and days of being trapped, going round in endless circles, surrounded by water full of their own shit, and having a castle that they're not allowed in. So yeah, again, it's still an adequate analogy for Britain right now. As Peter Kay announces his first new tour in 12 years, you wonder if he's just going to be asking the audience to remember things from just a couple of years before that have seemingly been erased from most memories and coverage. Do you remember, do you, when the Treasury had a black hole the last time and it was all your credit card debt, even though when you applied for a credit card it went, no, sorry, you don't have enough credit. Do you remember when it was all asylum seekers' fault the NHS was collapsing before, but then you voted Brexit to stop it and the NHS is collapsing more and now you're like, oh... It was definitely them on a dinghy last week what did it. And they said, hey, we'd like to work as nurses. And we showed them by saying no and died just to spite them. Do you remember when we said we'd do more for energy companies to get green, but it just meant all the extra banknotes they'd get? Do you remember when you were a kid, right, and the river wasn't full of your own shit? Gavin Williamson's a twat. Gavin Williamson, eh? Gavin Williamson. You know, like that, but with an actually Bolton accent. Jokes and ticket prices that I guess Peter Kay hopes no one remembers were in a cost of living crisis when they see them. Do you remember when I last did a tour and you could afford to come? Etc, etc. It must be tricky for the Prime Minister being in charge of the country with such serious amnesia. 
Rishi Sunak seems unaware of what his job is, what the state does, or that Minister Without Portfolio and what if the dark judges from 2000 AD recruited the Pepper Army man, Gavin Williamson, sent unacceptable texts, or that his home secretary and inspiration for the Skeksis in Dark Crystal, Suella Braverman, was warned that her actions were dangerous. Rishi Sunak's become a sad remix of a talking hedge track, hasn't he? Next, he'll be at the podium announcing, this isn't my beautiful house, this isn't my wife's business still operating in Moscow, how do I work this? Where is that large automobile? It really makes you wonder if there's something in the British waters right now. Oh yeah, of course there is. It's all the poo, and that must be why our memory has gone to shit too. People can't expect the state to fix everyone's problems, said the Prime Minister in an interview over the weekend. Sure, if we take everyone's problems, as it sounds sort of literally, I don't expect to be able to ring number 10 to ask why that one pan lid keeps falling out of our cupboard no matter where I put it in there. It's really fucking annoying. But a lot of problems are definitely the state's to fix. Not least because it fucking caused them in the first place. I mean, what is the point of the state if it's not, at the very least, going to make some attempt to do the things you'd expect from the state? Have we put the one person in charge of it that has absolutely zero idea what his job is? Sorry, let me rephrase that. Have a hundred Tories put the one person in charge of it that has zero idea what his job is? Is Rishi Sunak at number 10 like us letting a chicken run a nuclear power station? You have to wonder what the manual is for those who get the job of Prime Minister. I assume it's like the sort of plastic folded printout using only Comic Sans that you'd find in an Airbnb left casually somewhere near the phone in the Downing Street flat. It's likely Sunak, and indeed his predecessors, only skimmed through it to find what the Wi-Fi code was and if everything can go in the same bin. It would explain the same rookie errors if not one of them had ever seen page 8, which explicitly says in 18-point marker felt wide red all caps that no one should ever hire Gavin Williamson for anything other than as pest control or as a super creepy draft excluder. The details on this page clearly list how he's a danger to national security, single-handedly ruined the lives of hundreds and hundreds of children, once used the phrase hard power without irony, and when he laughs it looks like his rubber face mask disguise is slipping off his skeleton horse mouth. But how would Rishi Sunak have any idea apart from all those months he worked in the safe government as the man who could make even Cher's skin crawl? Just days after appointing him as a minister without portfolio so that he can ruin everyone else's, it was revealed that Gavin Williamson had sent a series of threatening texts to the then chief whip and star of Motherland, Wendy Morton, because he wasn't invited to the Queen's funeral, meaning I guess he was unable to sniff the coffin or whatever it was he needed to do to regain his powers. Williamson told Morton, well, let's see how many more times you fuckers all over, there is a price for everything, which is both a threat and proof that he refers to himself as more than one person. Rumours suggest Gavin Williamson bullied a number of people during Sunak's leadership campaign, and he's currently the least liked cabinet minister amongst Tory members. So, you know, I'm sure these texts are just a one-off, right? The excuses poured out from lemon grab impersonator Oliver Dowden, who insisted the texts were sent at a difficult moment in Parliament. You know, because they hadn't been there for so many weeks or done any work in months, they'd all forgotten what their job was. Williamson sent them in the heat of the moment, apparently, which, I mean, his wife should be livid about. And Rishi Sunak supposedly knew about the bullying accusation before he appointed Gavin Williamson to Cabinet, which doesn't sound right at all, as usually if you knew about those credentials, they'd have given him the job of Home Secretary or DWP. I mean, just look at Suella Braverman, who last week flaunted her full skill set as a fascist by any other name. It was revealed that she was warned countless times about the Manston Migrant Centre being overcrowded and unsafe, and that by using hate speech it could inspire the far right. But unfortunately, whoever warned her those things hadn't realised it just meant Suella Braverman took them as incentives to do both. These are the things she thrives on in a way that the dark side would be jealous of. If you told the Home Secretary, don't let that kid play with a plug socket, she'd be straight there insisting the child lick its fingers and play her brand new game of three-pin pokey. Though arguably that child would still be safer than those poorly housed in centres or hotels with no safeguarding or stranded in central London with no clothes or food like many have been. It's very odd for Braverman to refer to people seeking safety in the UK as an invasion, when this supposed invasion could so easily have been thwarted by some megabuses and an immigration system that acts like its wires have been chewed by a cat. Of course, Suella Braverman used the word invasion as purposefully inflammatory racist language, and because she's terrified an unaccompanied child might actually steal her job, because just by having a functioning heart, they're better qualified to do it than she is. 
I mean, look at how even the leftover Weetabix in a bowl from yesterday, Grant Shapps, did the job of Home Secretary when he was only in it for six days. He actually listened to the legal advice and made changes to Manston Asylum Processing Site to ensure it wasn't an overcrowded detention centre. I mean, fucking hell, even the woman Cersei Lannister would hire as an advisor, Pretty Patel, did that as well. And yet Bravman thought it was much better to go the whole hog and breach all the human rights and make people really suffer because they dared not to anymore. I suppose the problem is, there's just no incentive for the Home Office to make safe routes for people to claim asylum or give them any sort of reasonable treatment as fellow human beings, as then who can they point the blame on for the last 12 years of shit governance? It's why even the Labour Party have got all nostalgic for their racist mugs in preparation for them not fixing anything when they become the government. Labour leader and man who definitely thinks spicy food is anything with black pepper on it, Keir Starmer, complained that there were too many people from overseas hired to work in the NHS. Yeah, let's stop that, Starmer, and let those people stop wasting their time and compassion, saving our lives when it's clear our politicians wouldn't return the favour. I am sorry, apparently Keir Starmer was taken out of context or misinterpreted when he said during the BBC interview quite clearly that we don't want open borders and freedom of movement has gone and isn't coming back. How do you misinterpret that? Or, oh, sorry, was it only meant to be heard by dogs? It's a silly stunt, though, as even if it does make sense to train up a lot more NHS staff in the UK, you're only going to do that if the job pays properly, you don't land people with student debt for training to get there, and underfunding hasn't made it the hardest job in the world. Otherwise, you're essentially just saying, anyone have a tendency for stabbing people with needles for fun, no practice necessary, might just have a bigoted desire to step up so that no foreign has to do it instead. Labour have been accused of blocking left-wing candidates from standing for the next election, but Starmer insists he just wants a team that are ready for the future. And by that, I guess he means people who won't mind when he announces the party are red to represent Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood, and then he rehires Suella Bravman as Home Secretary for a third time. Blaming immigrants is back like it's the 2010s, and you know what else we get from that decade apart from an opposition that panders to sun readers? That's right. Austerity is charging through the door, humming Ariana Grande, looking round to see where its friends ableism and poverty porn are at. The Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, like someone stretched a haunted eye painting, is to set out tax rises and spending cuts totalling £60 billion to help deal with what they're calling a treasury black hole, which if that was accurate would at least give us the bonus of it never letting Hunt get back out again. Then again, as he is mostly dead space, perhaps he'd escape such gravity pulls. It's clear the UK economy isn't in a great place, with the Bank of England increasing the interest rate yet again and claiming we'll now be in the longest recession since the 1930s, which is great, as that decade showed these things go really, really well at the end of them. That's two years of recession, meaning that things will be dire until about six weeks before an election, when everyone's going to forget what happened overnight and Rishi Sunak tells the country he saved it and they all vote him back in again. However, Jeremy Hunt says of next week's spending plan that those with the broader shoulders will be asked to bear the greatest burden, which largely sounds like if you're a big lad total unit, you're going to have to do chain gang and rock breaking and us smaller folk will all be down the chimneys. The economy will also be helped by yet another bank holiday next May for the King's coronation, adding to the two already in that month so we can enjoy more money get spent on the things that really matter, like the man who is 99% jowls, Charles, get to wear a fancy hat that he's probably already tried on at least 10 minutes after his mum died and hasn't taken it off since. Speaking of Charles, he spent the past weekend hosting reception for COP27 delegates at Buckingham Palace, while Rishi Sunak U-turned and decided he'd be going to the proper thing in Egypt, as he'd done enough work on the budget now, which probably meant he took to it with a pair of scissors, shouted give everyone £10 off at Nando's, and then walked out. Before Sunak's speech to world leaders, though, the former former Prime Minister and sofa cover thrown over a wheelbarrow, Boris Johnson, did his own bit at a New York Times-hosted event, where he called himself the spirit of COP26. Probably because at his number 10 parties that followed, he consumed so much of the special whiskey that was given to guests, he's now largely composed of them. Johnson insisted that it was not the time to go weak and wobbly on net zero. Sure, but what's the opposite then? Going hard on it like Johnson did as he absolutely shafted the UK's chances of fulfilling its climate promises by backing new oil and gas sites, scrapping onshore wind plans and rewilding projects, opening the first new coal mine in ages and letting water companies shit in all the seas. There is no way Boris Johnson cares about the planet when he's certain everything revolves around him anyway, and it's enough that he recycles his same old crap anecdotes about how actually, under his leadership, the UK was great if you happily forget everything that happened. And so, inappropriately at COP26, Johnson just wasted a lot of energy again, though perhaps it inspired some that his resource for self-interest is seemingly renewable forever. It's a shame it's so costly for everyone else. 
As for the current Prime Minister, who's completely different to that former one that he worked under and offered to put back into the Cabinet and went to parties with, well, Sunak, he told the world to move faster on renewable energy. You know, in the way a factory boss might tell staff if they don't meet their targets, they'll be fired before they then go off on a golfing weekend. Sunak wants the fight against climate change to become a global mission for new jobs and clean growth. But before that happens, he'll happily let Shell and BP keep all their profits and allow the North Sea to be drained of oil for cash. It's quite something to hear that the UN chief and Martin Short in film prosthetics, Antonio Guterres, addressed the COP27 by saying we are all on a highway to climate hell. Which, by the way, I hope he's doing in an electric vehicle or it's really not helping the situ. But that is a stark warning if I've ever heard one, and I was once told my fingers would get chopped off if I didn't close my fists when I fell over during ice skating. Guterres followed it by saying, humanity has to cooperate or perish, which Rishi Sunak obviously heard and then translated as, well, I'm rich, so I think that means other people cooperate for me. And I think this is the crux of the problem. Sunak doesn't have to remember things because he's got money, and so all of these problems are of little consequence to him. He says he has zero tolerance for bullying, but he heard the accusations about Gavin Williamson before hiring him. The PM said he wants to reach net zero emissions, but he's still going ahead with all the oil drilling. And that suggests to me that as someone with unbelievable amounts of money, Rishi Sunak's just never seen a zero unless it's after lots and lots of other zeros, which are all after another big number or three. According to the Prime Minister, Bravman's fascist comments about refugees being an invasion were to do with the scale of the challenges, the numbers involved, because that's all it is to him, numbers and money rather than people and lives. It also explains why he's still confident about doing the job, even though he's got negative ratings, and why he's insistent he's actually very tall. Hey, do you remember, right? Do you remember when we had Prime Ministers who seemed even vaguely human? No, actually, me neither. One person who's used to a lot of zeros, especially when they follow the death toll he's responsible for, is former health secretary and face like a stupid hash brown Matt Hancock, who's joined ITV's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Despite not being a celebrity, but being an elected official who's pissing off to eat kangaroo dicks rather than work for his constituents. It seems he is sadly being paid £400,000 rather than, as I'd hoped for, in claps. And to be an actual contestant and not as I'd thought, just replace all the bugs as the creepy creature that latches onto people's faces in front of a hidden camera. As well, he does have the experience for that. Matt Hancock has had the whip suspended by the Conservative Party after joining the show and he now adds to C-sponge with makeup Nadine Dorries as being Tories who thought the best way to seem popular is to let people see how you relate to them surviving with very little for a week and then get given half a million for trying. Hancock said in his defence that politicians should go where the people are, but they aren't in the Australian jungle, are they, you fucking idiot? Go sleep outdoors in West Suffolk and eat bugs in order to survive and I reckon you'll have people gathering round to cheer you on within minutes. My main hope is that his parachute to jump into the jungle is made by the same companies Matt Hancock gave millions in PPE contracts to, despite producing faulty goods. Another Tory MP that's facing a vote to have the whip suspended is what if a pug fucked a potato, Andrew Bridgen, who the Cross-Party Standards Committee found had breached lobbying rules in multiple ways on a number of occasions, which is a long way of saying his ethics are more crooked than his face. He was also found to have lied in court under oath recently too, but Parliament didn't seem to mind that one as I guess just telling fibs is proof that you're meant to be an MP after all. If Bridgen's colleagues vote against him, he'll only be suspended for five days because nothing incentivises those who are doing wrong things quite like a week off for them to recharge and come back to it with even more renewed vigour. Nurses across the UK have voted to strike for the first time in history with a walkout due to take place before Christmas, which has really confused all the people whose argument against the rail strikes was that they earned more than healthcare workers did. The pay of some nurses has fallen in real terms by 20% since 2010 and they are calling to rightfully be paid more with a 15% rise because it turns out those claps really can't be cashed in anywhere. Oh, I see, that's why Matt Hancock didn't take them. But so far, the government are only offering a rise of 4%, which with cost of living and interest rates is still a cut. You can't be fooling nurses with inadequate treatment to heal a problem, can you? Critics are worried about the backlog this will cause for operations and appointments, but it's being organised by the Royal College of Nursing, so if they really just hammer home their link to the monarchy, all the right-wing papers will have to support it and demand war-to-war coverage as yet another bank holiday. The Lib Dems held their postponed conference over the weekend, much to the dismay of everyone who'd hoped it had been cancelled. Party leader and what if Alexander Armstrong was thrown off a cliff in a barrel, Ed Davey, said that they will end the chaos of British politics, which I suppose, fair play, would make a great third act to the story that they helped start with the coalition. It'd be very, very Darth Vader of them. And finally, this week is the US midterm elections where it's neck and neck as to who will control Congress, with vote numbers surging as a lot of Americans realise that the country being a total binfire might at least keep them warm during the inevitable apocalypse. 
If the Republicans win a majority in Congress or Senate, the US will have two years of complete stalemates and absolutely nothing getting done, which can then pave the way for the possible return of nuclear hemorrhoid Donald Trump to the White House in 2024. The Republicans' current campaign against the Democrats is about rising inflation and a rise in violent crime, which they would tackle by reducing gun laws even more. So I suppose it's just then not crime anymore, is it? It's kind of legal murdering. Who am I kidding? Under a Republican government, there'd be less violent crime, but only because they wouldn't encourage a storming of the US Capitol while they were in it. As for the return of the ketchup chucking someone covered that toad in highlighter pen, populist dangerous wanker Donald Trump, he said he'll very, very, very probably do it again in 2024, but no one's sure if he means run for US president or shit himself while playing golf. I suppose as catastrophic as it would be if he was president again, at least then he could return all those top secret national security documents that he left at Mar-a-Lago. Hola! Oh, that was a hard one to write this week. Lots of bitty bits of news, wasn't it? Um, I hope some of that was funny. All terrible bits of news, but kind of like a sort of Muller Corner dessert of shitty news toppings to put upon the yoghurt of sadness. Um, I don't think they do that flavour, sadly. This podcast is not sponsored by Muller. Um, I didn't even mention Moonface Elon Musk's Twitter bonkersness, all of which just seems like he wants to take his ideas from 80s supervillains. To me, Twitter has always been full of really fucking awful people and terrible opinions, so I'm not sure it's changed that much. And I suppose if Musk does change the algorithm so your tweets will be at the bottom of the feed unless you pay money, which I won't do, then at least I can pretend no one shared my jokes because they haven't seen them. Um, I'm currently enjoying that Elon Musk spent $44 billion to get completely owned by Twitter users and spend all his time having to do customer service on there. I suppose rich people have expensive kinks. Um, It's all about free speech, isn't it? And then as soon as someone changes their accounts to look like him, they all get blocked, which is genuinely funny. I think it's a bit like a kid with a new toy where he's going to break it then leave it alone and someone else will be able to buy it on eBay for a fraction of the price. I'm probably going to stay on Twitter uh, till it dies or doesn't uh, and sort of treat it much like my tactic with parties as a teenager where I'd hang around way longer than I was welcome and then end up having an awkward chat with someone's parents where I was clearly drunk and then they'd offer me some toast and keep hinting that I should really go home now. I have set up a Mastodon account, uh, mainly out of curiosity. I don't understand it. I don't really know what's going on. It's quite funny that uh, when you do a message, it's called a toot. Uh, I'm very good uh, at tooting sounds. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm also not sure it's particularly great to leave one social media platform that might be going extinct and go to one that's named after a mammal that already is. But hey, we will see. Um, You know, really, I'm aware I should just quit all of them and work on things I need to work on. But we all know I just spend the whole time procrastinating with something else instead. And that could go horribly wrong. I mean, like, what if it was crossbows? What if, what if I procrastinate with crossbows? I mean, it won't. I won't do that. What if it was right? Um, tell you what, though, uh, we did jump on the air fryer bandwagon this weekend. Uh, got a little cheap one from Argos with the aim of being healthier and saving gas. Um, but I don't think it's worked because I used up so much electricity, basically seeing if I can make absolutely everything in my home crispy, so I can then shove it in my face. Yeah, everything makes everything crispy. Pillows are really nice, crunchy. Actually, please don't air fry your pillows. Thanks, that was a joke. And you know what is real crispy, though? The planet as it burns. Oh, God, no, sorry. I mean, you, you amazing listeners. Super crisp. Does that make sense? No, not really. Okay, I'll just backtrack from this right now. What I meant to say was, uh, you're great. I love what you've done with your hair. Thank you for listening to this. Mega thanks to Tim, who joined the Patreon last week, which you can do too for absolutely zero extras. I mean, there's enough content in life already, right? Why not just enjoy the lack of extras as some sort of calm? Uh, maybe just enjoy the act of giving me money which is true kindness Um, and you can do that by heading to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or you can buy me a one-off coffee uh, if you can afford such things at kofi ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro and that's a coffee as it used to be no interest rates have gone up on my price of coffee Um, because you know I do these podcasts for absolutely nothing except the sheer catharsis of being able to shout about it all to someone with occasional jokes in Um, and sometimes I do get like £3 from Acast adverts or something really pathetic Thanks, Financial Times. Um, that's it. Nothing else from me this week. I should probably apologise for that Peter K impression, uh, but I won't. Um, it's a shorter and excellent interview this time round with Director of the Progressive Economy Forum, James Medway, um, kindly explaining what an absolute fucking state we're in. Uh, you know, in case you were blissfully unaware, which I'm sure you, you, you weren't. You were definitely aware, weren't you? Unless, wait, hang on. Rishi, do you listen to this show? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Not sure if you've heard, but the UK is currently in a cost of living crisis. Oh wait, deja vu. I've done this intro before, haven't I? And only mere weeks ago too. Well, I suppose if the government can use the same ideas again and again, then why can't I, right? Even Stevens and all that. But since we were last in a cost of living crisis, which was only about a month ago, we're now somehow in even more of a cost of living crisis and we're going to be in even more of one as well. We're not just having a recession, we're having a two-year one that if it was the type that affects hair would leave you bald all over like a concerned seal. Luckily, since the heady days of the trust leadership, or whatever you'd call it when someone flapped about number 10 like a pigeon that accidentally got in an open window, the government's economic strategy for tackling such things has changed. And we now have Rishinomics, Sunakonomics, Rishful Thinking, I don't know, but it's definitely there to save us from this crisis. What will the multimillionaire that definitely knows how them poor folks live, you know, the poor folks with their only one or two houses, do for us? Well, it sadly seems like there's going to be more slashes and cuts than a session on papercraft led by Michael Myers. No longer are we going to be getting £10 off of Nando's to help out, but instead it's back to the last decade for making us all pay for a decade of us having to all pay and a pandemic that we all had to pay for and a war that we're now having to pay for. And I mean, yeah, you get the idea. There might be a treasury black hole, but it appears we're the ones being suckered into everything. It's a bit like we live in a giant tenement block and the landlords on the top floor have put in several heated swimming pools and billed everyone for it as a service charge. But Liz Truss has gone, so hasn't that just automatically fixed everything? Why does no one have any new ideas? And with even more cuts, is the only industry that will really thrive, hairdressers. So yes, the economy again. While I don't usually do a topic so soon after doing it already, it was kind of necessary this time. I mean, just look, just look. I spoke to James Medway, former chief economist at the New Economics Foundation, former advisor to John McDonnell when he was shadow chancellor and now director of the Progressive Economy Forum, which is working to bring together a council of eminent economists and academics to find an economic programme for Britain that isn't one of the terrible ones we've had already and therefore might actually work. I asked James if there really is a treasury black hole, if there's any case at all for austerity and if we should take down the hairdressers to reclaim our wealth. OK, not the last one. But James gave a brilliant top speed breakdown of all of it and why, well, it's not great. But despite the obvious bleak ending, I do hope you find this as useful a chat as I did. Here's James. James, I'm aware I've, I've caught you on a very busy day, so thank you for this. Um, I think the very first question is, uh, it was only early September I spoke to someone at New Economics Foundation talking about a recession, how things are going. Where we are today feels like... It's all gone wrong. <laughs> More things have happened. Things are even worse. So can I start with just a, a, what is going on and why are we where we are now? Well, that's a big question. There's, there's a lot, as you might have noticed, uh, happening at the minute. Um, the, For instance, today, uh, which is uh, Thursday the 3rd of November, the Bank of England has just announced it will be putting up its interest rates. Um, this is the, the, the interest rate the Bank of England controls. It's one that other big banks um, can can make use of. The rest of us don't really see it, but it changes the interest rates we pay on other things in the rest of the economy, like mortgages and uh, maybe credit cards and a few other things like this. Um, so they put that rate, interest rate up by, by the most for about 30 years. And the reason they say they're doing this is to try and ward off inflation. So one of the things that's happening at the minute is inflation is still very high, um, really a lot higher than people have known uh, in Britain for 
God, I mean, probably is about 30 years, to be honest. Uh, you know, generations of people born where, uh, would have been born where inflation has not ever been this high. I mean, if I think back far enough, perhaps in my own lifetime, it's been up to around 10% or so. Um, and that is driven in particular by really big events in the rest of the world. Uh, so, so it's not just Britain that's seeing high inflation. It's like, basically everywhere, all, all the major economies, smaller economies, uh, developed, less developed countries, whatever you want to call it, everyone's having this problem with rising prices. And that's driven by really big factors, number one of which that people know about is Russia invading Ukraine, um, two biggest exporters of grain, of I think wheat as well, certainly fertilizer, various things that are very important um, to the rest of the economy. So the price of that, because it's been disrupted, has gone up. You then throw in things like um, still lockdowns for COVID in China, a load more announced um, around, well, the areas where Foxconn, who make iPhones, uh, amongst other things. Uh, have their factories. So that's kind of disrupting supply there. And then you've got the, the sort of environmental breakdown is the only way to describe it, that that you have, you know, the, the Danube was reaching its driest level uh, ever over the summer. There's been disruption to crop production. There's harvests that are not coming through because we have extreme weather events because it's getting harder to grow crops. So all of this stacks up into interest rates going up. And then you get on top of this, Bank of England saying, well, we're, we're going to have to put up, um, sorry, not interest rates, all this stacks up into inflation uh, going up because the price is everything going up. Uh, that means everybody's being made steadily poorer, like the pounds or euros or whatever you have is becoming worth less because you can buy less with them. Uh, and the Bank of England responses say we'll put up interest rates in the belief, and they're clear about this, that this will actually either bring on a recession or make any recession worse. So I think next year, it's not quite baked in, but it's like it's very likely we'll be in a recession, that unemployment will go up and that wages that most people are being paid, wages, benefits, pensions will continue to fall relative to how high prices are. It's it's a it's it's a really miserable situation. There isn't really some way to make this look better. The the one bright spot, I suppose, is that gas prices, natural gas prices, have come down somewhat from their really really high levels a few months ago. Um, nothing to do with the Bank of England and interest rate. Uh, a lot to do with uh, reducing demand for gas right. in Europe over the last sort of few months or so. Well, that that was an amazing, very quick explainer. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. But but what I noticed you didn't mention in there is. Liz Truss's fiscal plan, which oh sort of, yeah, but it's from, not very important. So, so that's <laughs> wow. Okay, no, that's that's amazing to me because from what I sort of had gathered, that seemed to make things worse. It's 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 a funny one because okay, look the the, the immediate shock of this this uh, mini budget that, that we ended up calling it on what was it like twenty third of September, so it's just over a month ago, about six weeks ago. Quasi Quarting does a whole load of announcements, um, mostly centred on and basically cutting taxes for really really rich people. Uh, if, this 45p rate, which you currently pay if you earn more than £150,000. If you earn more than £150,000, you're pretty much literally in the top 1%. It's a tax cut for the top 1%. Um, plus cuts to corporation tax, which is supposed to go up next year. Uh, and then um, some changes to sort of tax on dividends and a few other things as well. Just lands all this, causes a market panic, basically because financial markets, I've, I've sort of used this metaphor before, it's it's like people sort of worry about financial markets. I suppose if, you, if you're trying to think about how to deal with them it's like having to deal with a really sort of an aggressive dog or something similar you know you just have to sort of keep keep some distance don't make any sudden moves maintain eye contact that sort of thing and you can kind of creep past it and what quasi quarting did was basically run up to the thing shouting boo so of course markets panic because this this is this is a big budget actually not mini budget big budget lands in them lots and lots of borrowing for all these tax cuts and there's a panic about basically centred on can the government uh it says you'll pay this money back so how can it really pay this money back can it make the spending cuts that are implied or can it increase taxes further down the line and so the interest rates the government faces where it's borrowing starts to rise the value of the pound crashes that's basically where the this chaos comes in uh this financial chaos there now you know, fast forward a few weeks as not going into all the details, basically the Bank of England, to be blunt, threatens to pull the plug on the government and, and the support it was offering to financial markets. There's another round of panic. Quarting has got rid of. Hunt is replaced. A bit later, Truss is removed as prime minister. And, and then here we are. So now there's a big talk about, oh, we've got to clean up the mess. A large part of that mess has been cleaned up with by financial markets themselves. Now saying the people who work in financial markets, big institutions, actually nowadays it's a lot of robots, it's a lot of automatic 
trading. Um, these people basically saying we are now happy to lend money to the government at a, at a lower rate than it would have been uh, if we just carried on with the Kwatang Trust plan. So, so it's slightly cheaper for the government to, to borrow money. That's probably saving about £10 billion, let's say, over the next sort of few years or so uh, in terms of borrowing costs. That's that bit dealt with, right? Now, all the people trading uh, government bonds, government debt, trading the pound are somewhat calmer about things. There are still huge problems. <laughs> the uh, government borrowing rate was still rising. The pound is still well down on what it used to be. More fundamentally, and this is the bit that doesn't get talked about, the British economy is really not in a good place. It is a uh, very high debt economy, not just because of government, because everybody has loads of debt. It is a low growth economy. It is a low wage growth economy and has been for a decade, even before the cost of living crisis. And it's a low investment economy. Oh, and by the way, we we, we have to import a huge amount of stuff that we borrow for the, the, that we need from the rest of the world. Uh, we import half the natural gas that we use. We import about half the food that we eat. You know, so, it's, so it's really dependent on whatever else is happening in the rest of the world, which, by the way, if the pound falls in value, value means that everything you have to buy, because you have to buy food, you have to buy gas, is getting more and more expensive. None of this is good. And these are all really deep long-term problems. The the, the kind of the, the daft thing about the mini budget and quasi quarting and Liz Truss, I mean, they kind of added to this. It's a shock. But the problems are all still there. And when you think about how to deal with those really deep problems, not just like, oh, well, Truss has gone, uh, Quarting's gone, it's all going to be fine, sensible Rishi Sunak and sensible Jeremy Hunter in charge. It's just nonsense. So just just to help clear up because you're so sort of expert at helping clear up the some of the language back because I had no I had mm-hmm. no idea about the um in in my head I just assumed that that kind of trust mini budget was had kind of exacerbated but if we're already yeah. there which is is terrifying but you know there's been a lot of talk this past week about a treasury black hole so mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could explain what what that actually means and does it need filling or is this kind of just sort of talk to kind of p- to push through some of the ideological measures that we'll, yeah. we'll talk through in a minute. Exactly. I mean, it, look, it's, it's basically it's made up, right? I mean, just to be clear about this, is what, what has happened in recent weeks is not that the government has suddenly and mysteriously lost a load of money, right? The implication is not quite something a black hole. People think it's big, it's terrifying, and it's coming to get us all. You know? And actually, this thing exists only because of what you put into a computer model of what's going to happen to the economy in a few years' time. And it's a product of what your forecasts are for economic growth, primarily, over the next few years, and uh, the government's own target for shrinking the amount of debt it holds relative to the size of the economy. And if you change either of those, and you don't have to change it very much, the black hole basically shrinks, can even disappear. All you have to do is have a slightly better forecast for growth than the black hole, so-called black hole, this gap between what the government is planning to spend and what it is going to get in taxes. Uh, That's the black hole, right? That black hole looks very different if you have slightly more growth. It looks a lot different if you change your target for when you think debt will be falling relative to the size of the economy. So that's the big government target. At the minute, that's quite tight. I mean, over some years, three years, we're probably going to move it out to five years. They're just going to move it, make the black hole, so-called black hole, smaller. This thing isn't real. It's not like actually less money. The things that are real in Britain are things like people don't have enough money and prices are going up. That's real. People know this because you don't have enough money. Your wage is not high enough. That's a real economic fact. The black hole is not a real economic fact. It's something that hypothetically exists because of your computer models and because of what the, the government says it wants to do with its debt target. Change those two things, black hole disappears. So I feel like you've you've sort of answered this question already by mm. pointing that out. But is there any case at all for austerity again, austerity 2.0, no. as the plan to help the UK economy when, when it's people that are already suffering? No, none at all. There's even less of a case now than there was in 2010 when George Osborne uh, jammed through uh, the, the spending cuts. And, and there's even less a case. And, and like, I mean, there is... There's quite a broad consensus on this now. If you go to the Institute for Government, which is you know, it's like the ultimate sensible think tank out there, uh, you know, they have a comprehensive going through just how bad a state basic public services are in Britain. Uh, GP waiting times, courts, you know, you have people waiting months before they can go to trial. Like the elementary stuff about justice falling apart because of austerity over 10 years. Like there's these basic things about living in a modern society that isn't working properly because of 10 years of austerity. Now, 
Actually, Boris Johnson did increase spending on this, even before coronavirus. Public spending was rising, but it wasn't enough at all to undo the damage that's been done. Uh, inspector of schools saying that there's a number of schools in the country that are now basically unsafe because the quality of the buildings is falling apart. You know, the porting cabinets, which I remember when I was growing up, and this is when there were real school cuts, were also happening. You know, you had to go and sit in these temporary classrooms, actually been there for like 10 years. And you get kids are having to do this again. So, so this is th- these are all real basic things that shouldn't be happening in a very big, rich country like Britain, right? Sixth largest economy in the planet still, and all of this is there. So if you try and do more austerity, you're just going to fundamentally trash these things. You know, your bins aren't going to get collected in mind every two weeks. Your bins aren't going to get collected at all. Social care, 1.4 million vulnerable adults need social care, not getting it right now. So was it, it goes up to 2 million, it goes up to 3 million. We, we can't do this, right? That's the obvious case in austerity. The economic case is non-existent. As I said, this black hole disappears. If you want to change the rule, it, it's like you can shrink it. You can have a you can have a tiny black hole. You want you can have a ten billion pound black hole. You know, you just fiddle about with your own rules on how you're going to repay the debt. The financial markets will accept that. What panics financial markets, if that's your big concern, is is a surprise. Quasi Kwartan gave them a nasty surprise, so they panic. If you just say clearly what you want to do for the next five years, they'll be fine. Change the rule. So they can do that. So there's no economic case here. What the government ought to be doing is thinking about how to get public services running. And so on the back of that, how you can get more investment into the bits of the country that need it, which is basically everywhere, to be blunt, outside of London the city of London in particular, uh, and then how you can get wages uh, to, to increase for most people and how you can pay more in benefits and pensions, the opposite of austerity. So, and, and I'm aware that this is this is probably quite a tricky question to ask you or in fact anyone other than the government themselves, but th- this is strictly ideological. Why are they stuck on, why are the Conservatives sort of stuck on this idea? Because I, I feel like with Quasi Quieting's mini-budget, you could at least, as horrific as it was, very clearly see this is to make their rich friends even richer. Austerity just sort of, damages the entire country i you know and i can't work out why they're stuck on this and you know labor sort of hinted at perhaps as sort of cuts as well what why are we just why is it the same old ideas i think it's i think it's sort of in some ways i might, I might say it's the other way around because I, I thought quasi quarting's budget was quite ideological in, in the sense of like he believed that by doing this we, we will spark off growth this is why Les trust kept talking about we need to spark off growth now the belief there is something like if we cut taxes for rich people and for corporations they will get to keep more of their profits themselves uh, if they get to keep more of their profits, they'll invest more because they get more profit. Right? Uh, it, there's no real evidence for this, frankly, but that's their belief. So they tried to implement that and, and it crashed. What's happening with austerity, I think, is, is there are some Tories out there who just whatever happens, they want to shrink the state. It's just however big the state is now, it should be smaller. There are people who have that quite deep sort of libertarian commitment. Right? Free markets basically run everything. State should basically maybe... It's the police or something, you know, you shouldn't have the NHS privatised that. There are some people who believe this. That's quite a clear ideological statement. My problem with austerity, all of our problems with austerity, because problem kind of for all of us, is that it's not the it's not the ideologues doing this. It's not, it's not the um it's not the people who like really truly believe in this stuff, quasi quieting, this trust, you know, people who come through the Institute of Economic Affairs. It's all the sensible people who sit in the middle of British politics who say things like, Oh, well, you know, this is going to be very difficult for the government now, very difficult. There's a big old black hole in the economy. It's the Institute of Fiscal Studies, who whose re- initial report led to this, you know, an account of like, oh, well, there's 50 billion pounds that government. To, uh, to, to find and suddenly all the newspapers are talking about 50 billion pound black hole these are these are sensible people these are the ones who are like supposed to know what's going on they're going to clean up the mess of the ideologues but they're the ones pushing for austerity whether they intend to do that or they don't intend to do that that's what's happening so i think what's going on here is is something more fundamental which is a problem because it's harder to deal with which is something like just the way the british state operates and the way the people either in the key bits of the british state to do to do with economic management, treasury in the Bank of England primarily, and the way the people around them and close to them, like the Institute for Fiscal Studies, think about what's important in the economy, means that they tend to think above all else, what really matters is kind of what financial services could could do the best out of. This is the bit of the economy that really works. We need to make sure everything is keeping that on track. And if you want to keep that on track, you know from two thousand eight the thing can crash. Uh, you know that you can it crashes horribly, and that we all have to pay for cleaning up the mess of the financial services, the financial crisis in two thousand eight, uh, and that means austerity. So, what you want to do now is just clear a bit of space in case there's a crash. You just want to make sure that the government isn't carrying a load of debt, isn't running a big deficit, because things are quite risky. So, you just want to insulate everything. You want a bit of fiscal space, as they call it. It's not really ideological. It's just kind of that's just how the country is going to work. So, if you want to change this. And this is like a challenge for everybody. 
because it means the problem isn't just like get some people without daft ideas at the top. It means we're going to have to change the institutions. We're going to have to change the structures. We're going to have to really like fundamentally alter how the economy operates. We're not in this weird doom loop where you know the default setting is just lurching back to austerity. Every time there's a bit of an upset, we come back to austerity because that's all everyone can think to do. You know, that's a structural problem. So it, it, it's we have to change how we, we think about it. It's it, it's because it, it, currently we're just sort of plodding along with keeping things the same, which are not good, yeah, yeah, yeah. but not exactly. not not the worst, rather yes. than actually making them better. It's what they used to call a steady management of decline, right? This is a right. phrase in the 70s. I'm sure Thatcher used it when she was criticising, you know, the civil service in the early 80s. It, but it's kind of what we got. It's just like, don't rock the boat. Keep everything like it is. It's a slow, miserable descent for most people. But, hey, we'll get away with it. We got away with it in the last 10 years. They did. They got away with austerity for about a decade. And then they had to, under enough pressure, they had to sort of shift out of it a bit. This time around, it's like, well, they don't have any other bright ideas. So they're back onto this. I don't think they'll be able to do it. I think the political pressure against austerity this time from all quarters will be too great and, and this programme will be broken. My, my guess is the Tories will recognise this and say in their fiscal statement that they want to do, their autumn statement they want to do in about two weeks, they'll say something like tax rises for some unpopular things. They're going to extend the windfall tax. I'd have thought maybe a few other bits and pieces like that. Uh, but the cuts, they're going to hive off until after 2024 in the next election and just give it to Labour to sort out. Yeah, because either they win the elections, they just do the cuts, or Labour has to deal with it, and that's they're going to create that political problem. Right. Because in the meantime, we're all just sitting there with this drift. By the way, nothing's going to change. Yeah, prices are going to carry on rising. Wages aren't going to go up too much. It's just this horrible, horrible sort of drift. So it'll be the thing where it looks like they're doing something, but aren't actually yeah, doing yeah, exactly. anything. Yeah, yeah. Because I'd have thought the public pressure, I mean, simply we're seeing about BP and Shell in the last couple of weeks. People notice, people are noticing that profits are being made and they aren't coming yeah. their way. That's got to be putting some pressure on. We've got, we've got to be clear about this. I mean, the the, the reason BP and Shell and, and these other big natural gas oil producers are making these profits is because we're paying more, right? They, they've exploited the instability in the world, effectively. They've, they've kind of exploited the fact that actually there's been a, a tightening of supply for natural gas and this sort of thing. They've just sat on top of that and turned that instability into rising prices and exploited that in order to turn it into massive like, astronomical profits. Now, I, I think... Well, I mean, the talk over the weekend and into the like Daily Telegraph today was that the Treasury is considering extending the windfall tax, which is currently sort of in place for a few energy companies, extending it to a wider range of companies and, and maybe, maybe running it for another few years, that sort of thing. I think they might actually have to do that for the reason you've identified. They don't really want to do this. They're quite happy for Shell, BP or whoever to take their profits and just run off into the distance. I mean, that's how we've run the North Sea since it was started getting oil and gas out of it, right? It's one of the lowest tax uh, oil and gas fields anywhere on the planet, and it has been for a very long period of time. So we've always just let the uh, profiteer from it. Um, but they've identified the public anger, and they, they know that they're going to have to do something on this. I think they probably will. It's out of character of the Tories, but that shows the political pressure they're under. So I, I did see, I, you retweeted someone earlier today, I saw that it was saying this is looking like state collapse. Is it, I mean, do you think they're going to stave off that with with changes to to the budget or do you think we're just as you say it's just going to happen but slower in, in the next couple of years because i mean it's, it's a really you know as you say it is a bleak picture that we have yeah. at the moment i mean that's the problem the demands on again you just can't look at an institute for government who, who i refer to because they are they're, they're they are by no means like they're a long way from being on the, the sort of radical left or or you know these real sort of uh, wild-eyed reformers it's like they, they are the, the the embodiment of sensible think tank policy stuff and like if you read through what they're saying about the state of public services uh, and, and actually people's just experience of like trying to get a gp appointment recently or going to an nhs hospital or something like this um it's 10 years of austerity, some, a little bit of funding afterwards, the absolute chaos and crisis of uh, coronavirus, which has really whacked a whole load of things out of shape. And you know things like long COVID and lots of other demands I mean, for the NHS, an aging population, lots and lots of complicated additional demands appearing on it. All of these things need more money. Like every part of our public services basically needs more money. Uh, education spending was cut terribly. Uh, in per-pupil terms, in real per-pupil terms, by the Tories. It needs to go up significantly. Our schools have got horribly overcrowded classrooms all over the place. All these things need more money. If we don't put more money in, the, the kind of pressures that are building up, the damage that's already been building done will start to accumulate, is already accumulating over the next few years. These things are all going to get worse and worse. 
And then you hit a real crisis of some sort. Like the, the NHS doesn't get through next winter's crisis. You probably get through this one. It might not get through the next one. I mean, what happens if there's another serious variant out there? You can invent fairly catastrophic scenarios. But frankly, the general path is that this is going to get worse. Inflation is not going to come down. Um, for a period of time, for a long period of time. And I would probably argue more controversially, not really ever, because the ecological crisis isn't going away. So we can't stop with this. None of this is good. And the state's already creaking. And you have a government that turns around and says, well, everything is sort of falling apart. Our solution is to cut things even further. This is utterly unworkable. Um, So I don't, you know, how that plays out politically is probably going to be the decisive next two years in Britain. So in a sort of um, with a very hypothetical, very ideal, <laughs> ideal world scenario, what is it that they they should be doing? Because I think, again, we've sort of, you mentioned this before, but we've all got it in our heads. We've been told for years now that it's our credit card debts we've got to pay off and yeah. all this kind of nonsense. And, and as you said, obviously, the black hole isn't a thing, but we're constantly told that that is mm. what it is. And the state can't afford to do this. What? What should they be doing to recoup money? What What should they be doing to kind of restart or, or give I mean, the big- a, a kick? I mean, the big sort of dirty secret, there was a good, if people want to read it, it was quite a good piece by, a very good piece by um, Caris Roberts from the Institute for Public Policy Research and New Statesman. And there's a, a fairly wonky recommendation for you, but it was it was a nice piece on like what the government could do instead. And just like fairly sort of basic economics and experience in history tells you that the government's not like the rest of us. It doesn't need to repay its debt in the same way. If I have a debt or you have a debt, at some point you have to pay it and probably with interest. Right? That's the thing. And if you don't, you go bankrupt. The government can't really go bankrupt, particularly one like Britain. Somebody's going to turn up and say this. Um, so that's that's kind of a factor here. And if you want to get rid of your debt as a government, what you need is just a bit of economic growth and maybe a small amount of inflation, because this is what happened after the Second World War. After the Second World War, phenomenally expensive. Like the most expensive single thing, if you think of it as a single thing, I suppose, in British history. Um, debt to GDP, in other words, the size of national debt relative to the size of the economy coming out of the Second World War is up 200, 300%, that sort of level. Um, today it's about 100%, right? To give a scale, a you know, sense of scale here. Government didn't rush at the time to repay this. They set up the NHS. They, they introduced free education uh, up to age 15. They, they created the welfare state. Right? They didn't rush to say, we must pay the, the debt. This is the only thing we can do. And that debt, relative to the size of the economy, fell over the next sort of 30 years or so because the economy was growing a bit and there was a bit of inflation. And you put those two things together and, and you can chew away at the debt. So the obvious thing to do over the next few years, if you're worried about the size of the debt, is to say, we need a bit more growth than we've had. I mean, that would be a very conventional answer. That's the answer that Labour would give in this. That's one part of it. The other one is to simply say it doesn't actually matter that much. Yes, interest rates are rising, but they're rising across the world. And this is driven mostly by what's happening in the US. There's not too much you can do about that. But if you want to start paying for things, you need to think, well, this is a a weak economy, but it's a a big economy that's rich with a lot of that wealth held in the hands of not very many people in institutions. I mean, Corporations in Britain have £955 billion right now sitting in their bank account. It's a colossal amount of money that they're just sitting on. It's not really doing anything. So you you can just start to think through the concentrations of wealth and money that is out there in the rest of the economy once you start getting serious about we're going to have to address inequality. Uh, and I think this is going to be the real argument, a uh, hard political argument over the next few years. Because growth can return or not return. But if someone's got hold of resources like those 955 billion pounds or the, the extraordinary sums that people have made if you're a massive landowner by doing nothing because of the value of property's gone up. You know, there's something you could do with that. You could put that money to better use than what's happening at the minute, that people are just sitting on it. And, and, and you know, it's like, I don't know what they do. It's like Scrooge McDuck. You know, you, you know that thing where he has that huge pot of gold coins he likes to dive into and swim yeah. around it. Nice for him. It's not actually money doing anything. And what we have in Britain, like much of the rest of the world, like developed economies over the last sort of 20, 30, 40 years by now look like this. You just have these big pots of cash, effectively, lots of wealth held in some hands, not doing anything for anybody else. Right? It's just rich people sitting on it. So you need to change that. And that's the question about tax first. Is it, I, I was sort of very painful to jump into. It was all coins. It would have really hurt your face. Yeah, you thought so, but you seem to enjoy it. You, you seem to enjoy it. So. enjoy it. Yeah, very strange. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, perhaps a, a slightly bleak question to nearly end up, but is there, are any of the political parties kind of 
looking like they're swaying towards that as 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 a solution to towards any of those solutions because it, it as I sort of mentioned before, obviously the Conservatives, you say, may have to backtrack on things. Labour seemed to mention cuts as as well in in their most recent talk, Keir Starmer's talk to the TC Congress. Um, I mean, I, I guess is it inevitable they're just going to have to embrace uh, changing how they do things? I don't think so. I mean, the Tories are the Tories, right? And and if you can sort of push them away from uh, doing cuts and this is a win, I like I said, I don't want to be over-optimistic or overconfident, but the way it, it sort of looks at a minute, the amount of pressure on them, even from their own side, uh, for the Conservative Party, they have all these red walls, so-called red wall seats that they won, and they're quite marginal, and they could easily go Labour next time, and whoever's an MP there, if they don't decide to defect to Labour or something like this, will be thinking, any more austerity, when I told people who voted for me, no more austerity, I lose my seat, right? So so, so there's a real, there's like lots of political pressure on them to sort of ease off from this. Um, for Labour, I think the problem starts to look like, what if the Tories just say, because you know they because they, they're sneaky like this. Osborne did something like this in in coming into the twenty fifteen election. So they've done it before. Um, if they just go, okay, here's a whole load of cuts in the future, and then if we win in twenty twenty four, do we accept these cuts or do we try and like increase spending? They should try and increase spending. There is an argument and there is pressure around the Labour leader and Keir Starmer around the leader's office right now from the right of the party to say, no, no, we must be the sensible ones who are going to stick to Tory spending limits. It's a terrible, terrible way to think. They, they think they can sort of do what Gordon Brown did. When Gordon Brown ended up Chancellor in 1997, he had a big thing. I will stick to Tory spending plans for two, three years. And he did. And he was miserable because he meant no more money for stuff. Like, and that's in 1997 when the economy is growing and people are getting better off. In 2024, the economy quite likely is still in the recession. Everyone's going to be worse off. So you can't just sit there and say, we're not going to spend. Right? It's a disaster. That's the argument around Labour right now. It shouldn't be an argument. They shouldn't even be having this argument because it ought to be obvious they should go off and spend. But nonetheless, they have a verbal commitment to opposing austerity right now. Uh, Rachel Rees and Keir Starmer both said, we oppose austerity on specific cuts to pensions, to benefits. Uh, they've said they they want they will oppose austerity. Uh, they have a commitment to spend £28 billion a year on green investment to create a new publicly owned energy company. There's lots of good stuff there. The problem I have is that unless they also bring forward plans and like how they're going to pay for some of this, the pressure on them is to just not bother. Like, oh, well, we said all these things. Oh, the economic situation is so bad. You know the rhetoric. It's so bad. We're going to have to not do this for a bit until you know the economic situation improves. Then maybe you'll get some nice stuff. I think nonsense. The economic situation won't improve unless you start doing some of the nice things now, unless you start investing now, unless you start spending public services now. The economy doesn't get better if everybody in it is getting worse off. Right? That's what austerity means. The economy gets worse. So you have to do the opposite of this. Now, I, I think there's a row in Labour about this. And I think what we can do to make sure the good side wins that row, I think will be very, very helpful. And if that means protest demonstrations, there's one coming up this weekend, the TUC were having a lobby of parliament last week. There's many more strikes happening now, I think is an important part of the picture. That all adds up to political pressure and that's what can make a difference here. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. It definitely feels like uh, people are louder about it than ever before, which... Um... Yeah. I've got to have some hope somewhere. Got to have some hope somewhere. <laughs> um, well, listen, James, thank you so much for, um, I mean, I, I just all of that feels a lot clearer to me now and I, I really, really appreciate it and hopefully it will to listeners no too. No worries. Um, and I just want one final question, which is what I ask all, all the guests that we have on the show, which is apart from yourself, obviously, um, what other, are there any other sort of writers, sites or campaigns that you'd specifically recommend that listeners check out for good info reporting on the economy? Um, I know you mentioned the IPPR uh, mm -hmm. article earlier. Is there, is there anyone or anything else that you'd you recommend? Yeah, the, the, the difficulty with the economy is always like trying to find, I suppose, suppose not getting too much into the technicalities of it is what you really want. I like the, um, it's quite sort of main, it's very mainstream, but the Odd Lots podcast that Bloomberg put out is quite a nice sort of friendly chat around some sort of interesting economics uh, debates. Uh, Gary Stevenson, who is a much more radical economist, puts out some good YouTube videos. I don't always agree with him, actually, but he puts out some good YouTube videos on this. Um, somewhat surprisingly, Ambrose Evans-Pritchard in The Telegraph does a good line on, like, what's going on in the world of finance. You should be able to, you, know, you might have to find a way around a paywall with that. And actually, and, and I like um, Isabella Weber when she writes, very good on inflation and price rises and doesn't take any shit. That's very important. And finally, I think I'll probably have to put a word in for Andy Verity on the BBC, who has been doing this sort of one-man campaign against the bad way the BBC wants to talk about black holes and this sort of thing. So I think he's usually got a good take, nice, clear, simple explanation, no nonsense, not talking about black holes, being quite clear about what's really going on out there. 
thanks so much to James, who I hadn't realised till we spoke, had a silly full days of interviews about the Bank of England's decision to rise rates once again. So I was very, very grateful that he fitted in time to chat with me. Uh, you can find James's Progressive Economy Forum at progressiveeconomyforum.com. And if you're still on there, on Twitter at PEF underscore online. And James is still on Twitter, I think, at Medwaj. So M-E-A-D-W-A-J. And you can find his Substack at jamesmedway.substack.com. Also, thanks to former guest from several weeks back, Tony Collins, who suggested I get James on the show. I've got the next few weeks sorted and thanks to those of you who've been sending in ace suggestions too, but I always, always appreciate more. My appetite for good interviewee ideas is almost as big as my one for crisps, nearly sort of. Uh, and you can let me know at Bro on Twitter for now, Facebook and at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> That's all, folks, for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And should you need more, well, I mean, you can just listen to it again. Or, you know, subscribe so each audio hit arrives directly in your portable soundbox of choice. Perhaps you might want to inform others of the existence of this weekly attempt to make some sense of the nonsense. And if you can afford to chuck me a quid or two at the Kofi or join the Patreon, that would be lovely. If you're feeling super daring, even give it a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts or other natural habitats of the pod. Danku to Acast, my brother last sceptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Rishi Sunak announces he has a zero crime policy before announcing a new multi million hideout for Carmen San Diego. Bye. This week's show is brought to you by Suella Braverman's Invasion, an updated version of the famous board game Risk, where you choose how many troops you'll need to put children into an unsafe building. Defend your country against four people who have absolutely nothing and would just like to be nurses, and work with other players on global strategies to see who can be the most racist and cruel to people who helped aid their troops in military action last time. Suella Braverman's Invasion. Suitable for all ages 6+. plus. We'll